Lord God, we thank You that in Your Word You have revealed Your truth. We ask that as Your Word is preached, Your Spirit, He would be here. He would be active. He would be transforming our hearts and our minds so that we might become more like Christ. It's in His name we pray. Amen. So we're picking up the last couple verses that we, we covered the section last week. And the reason why I wanted to do that is because in the, specifically in verse 15 of Colossians 2, there's an important uh, theological point uh, that's made. And there's a debate that often rages within theological circles, especially Christian schools and seminaries, over the point made in this passage. And that point is, or the debate is over, how do we properly understand the death of Christ? What is at the very center or the very heart of that work? And since getting Christ's work is of utmost importance, you can guess that this debate sometimes uh, gets a little out of hand. If we get Christ wrong, well, we get just about everything else wrong. And so many people then line up the cases that they want to make, and generally what they aim their sights at, what they want to attack is what I would call the, the traditional view. The view you've probably all grown up hearing about the heart of Christ's work. And the, the technical term for this is called penal substitutionary atonement. Because when theological people come up with terms, they like to make things easy uh, for you to understand. But, but the term penal, you can think of penal code, right? Penal means Christ's death paid for something. It atoned for something. Substitutionary means that he died in your place. Right? So he, he paid something with his death, and he did that in the place of his people, and the atonement is then that it, it brought the two together, brought the two sides together, God and man. And we saw the validity of that view last week. Right? You died with Christ. You died in Christ. And he paid for your sins. And yet, substitutionary atonement has really fallen on, on hard times. Now, some people, the more inflammatory people, I'd like to suggest that atonement theology is slave theology. It perpetuates slavery. Others just say it's inherently disgusting and evil that Christ would die in the place of his people and that he would suffer the wrath of God the Father. I mean, that's just an ugly picture of God. And so in its place, a lot of people like to argue for other models of the atonement. There's the governmental theory. That is, Christ didn't die specifically for his people, but he died in general to take care of sin. And it's not really just for, for his people. The example theory of the atonement. That Christ died not to pay for your sin, but he died as an example. That we are to follow his example of sacrificing himself for others, as putting others first. And then there's the one we're going to discuss today. It's called Christus Victor. It just means Christ is victorious. Christ wins. He defeats his enemy in ours. And all of these theories, to one level or another, have a lot of biblical support. A theory isn't much of a challenge if you can't point to Bible passages. The problem comes not so much in noting that Christ died as an example for us, right? We're told, pick up your cross and follow Jesus. Imitate him. Of course, his death is an example for us to follow. It, and it's not so much saying that Christ died to defeat our enemies, because you're going to see that in Colossians 2.15. That's exactly what happened when he died. The problem comes is when people want to take those models and use it to deny that Christ died in your place to pay for your sins. Multiple things can be true at the same time. 
The debate rages because people hate the idea of Christ dying to absorb God's wrath. And so they point out passages that support their pet theory, and they deny the plain passages over and over again that point out the other theory. That's generally how debates go. You focus in on the the passages that you like, and you just completely ignore uh, the ones you don't like. And so, often what happens is some gifted communicators come into schools and seminaries and churches, they write books, they release videos that deny the very heart of the gospel, and it sounds plausible because you can cherry-pick verses out of the Bible and make just about any case you want to make for anything. But you have to put the whole thing together. And so then, people who've grown up in the church tend to feel like their pastors have been hiding things from them. They've been concealing the truth. It's a very uh, productive con that people like to pull in Christian schools and seminaries. And in response to this, many well-meaning theologians and pastors who do hold the traditional view, the substitutionary atonement view, will downplay the other things in the text. So we want to talk about the fact that Christ died for our sins. He died in our place. And because we so want to defend that, which we should want to defend, we just explain away the other ones. And that doesn't do us any real help either because there are other aspects to Christ's death. And I think we're going to see that in today's passage. That Christ's death does bring victory, but that victory only comes through the atoning substitutionary of death of Christ for his people. We all like to talk about victory. We all like to talk about winning. I was having a conversation with a pastor a week or so ago about this, and we were talking about people who cheat in different ways to win different things. He was wondering if this thing, if it could possibly have been some some cheating going on, and I looked him in the eye and I said, people will cheat to win a board game against their family. Of course they would cheat for something that's more important. The question isn't if they would want to, it's whether or not they did. I spent a large chunk of my day yesterday out on the baseball diamond for my oldest son's baseball league. I got pulled against my will into being an assistant coach. I'm a basketball player, not a, not a baseball player. And I'll tell you what, parents at that age level can get very into winning and trying to get one over. And then I feel like, man, I want to do that. You can feel that raising up inside of you, like, I was never going to be that parent, but ooh, when the other parents do that, you're like, I want to do that, right? Because we all want to win. And on one side, there's nothing wrong with wanting to win. One of the reasons why I want my sons to play sports is because they need to learn how to win. They need to learn how to win well, and they also need to learn how to lose. And they need to learn how to lose well and to work through that. That's the value of sports. Winning isn't everything, but they should try to win because they need to learn the lessons of winning and losing well. And we're going to see here in this passage that if we neglect the theme of Christ's victory, we do ourselves a disservice and we ignore texts upon texts that point this. And we can then, when we do that, we slump into this almost unbelieving pessimism. Like, yeah, Jesus died, but you know what? We're going to lose anyways. So let's just wait for Jesus to come back because we're losing. But the theme of the New Testament isn't wait. It's Christ has won. Christ has won. He won in a very specific way. And we'll, we'll walk through that this morning. So the first thing I want us to see is how Christ wins. How does he win? How does he go about achieving victory? And you'll notice here in verses 13 through 14, then moving straight into 15, Paul sees no tension whatsoever, no contradiction whatsoever between substitutionary atonement 
and Christ winning. In fact, they come together and they necessarily include one another. Look at verses 13 through 14 again. Paul says to the church, You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. How does he do this? Having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing to the cross. How does Christ conquer? How does he triumph? He does it by dying. What type of death is this death? He does it that we are found in him. He takes our sins. He achieves forgiveness for us. He nails your trespasses to the cross as he dies. That is penal substitutionary atonement. It's, it's right there. It's the thing you grew up hearing every Sunday in church as a kid if you grew up in a faithful church. And this reminds us the truth of all truths that we must be repeated in today's confused day is that this is primarily a moral universe. This is a universe that has right and wrong because it has a creator God. Your main problem, my main problem, is not socialization. It's not figuring out your identity. It's not even society. It's not mental. It's not physical. It's not about reaching your potential. Your primary issue is moral. That is the world the Bible puts forward for you. Your primary problem is that this is a moral universe created by a good God and that humanity, each and every one of us, has violated that moral code. That's your main problem. That's my main problem. And all the brokenness and the vanity of life is tied to this reality, that the world resides under the curse and weight of sin. Because sin has entered the world, so came death. And nothing short of dealing with that problem, sin, will straighten anything else. And so all of this works together. In the book of Genesis, we see at the very beginning, this beginning of the cosmic war between good and evil. God creates the world. He says, it is very good. Satan enters into this very good world, and he targets the pinnacle of that creation, man, who is made in the image of God, and he lies and deceives the woman into sinning. And the punishment for that sin is death. And so sin and death become the tools of Satan. His name, that name Satan, literally means the accuser. What does he do? He accuses people. He tempts them into sinning, and then like a little tattletale, he goes to God and says, see what he did? That's his job. He accuses people. And all of this is driven by his hatred for God's goodness and God's goodness in creation. God made the world good. Satan introduces evil to it. And the very first promise we get, the very first good news, the first gospel message we get in the book of Genesis is not specifically about substitutionary atonement. It's implied if you're reading carefully, but the explicit thing that is promised to us is a prophecy of victory. The very first gospel message in Genesis 3.15 says there will, there will come an offspring from the woman, and what will he do? He will crush the serpent's head, and the, shir- the serpent will bruise his heel. The very first introduction to the gospel we get is a promise to defeat our enemy. To defeat the enemy of God and the enemy of mankind. And that defeat must deal with death and sin. 
How did Satan make a mess out of everything? Well, he introduced sin and death to the world. And so to actually deal with it, the problem must be dealt with. Mankind must be redeemed from its sin and death. And this is what we find in the gospel message. Victory over death through the death of Christ. The, death of, or the defeat of sin and its claims upon us. In other words, when Christ died and you are found in him, the accuser can't accuse you anymore. He can't say you're guilty because Christ says you're in me, you're innocent. He can't say death is going to reign over you because Christ has overthrown death. And it is only through this atoning, substitutionary death of Christ in our union with him that victory comes. In other words, I'll say this as plainly as I can, we should never pit the idea of substitution against the idea of victory. They go hand in hand. And we must see that. The gospel is God's victory and our victory in him. God will not abandon his creation. He will not abandon his people. He will not let the enemy win. That's the good news. And thus God sets out his marvelous plan of redemption to enter his creation, to die for his creation, and to rise again in victory. That's what we see in the work of Christ. So who then does Christ defeat? We see the answer to this in verse 15. The rulers and the authorities. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. There is a stress throughout the book of Colossians here on this concept of authority. Specifically the authority of Christ. And we see in chapter 1 that it was Christ who created the rulers, the principalities, and uh, the authorities, the thrones, dominions, or rulers, or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. You see then in chapter 2, verse 10, Christ is the head of all rule and authority. This thing is getting repeated again and again for you because it's important. And in the immediate context here, the authorities being defeated are spiritual authorities and rulers, including Satan and his demons, who exercise influence over this world on a personal level, and on a national level. Throughout Scripture, there's a close connection between earthly authority and heavenly authorities. If you look back at world history, you would see that just about every person who ever ascended into being a king or an emperor or whatever would always make some sort of claim to divinity. It only really changed in modern times when then they would generally just become atheists, which just made them the de facto God anyways. And so Christ, here, is overthrowing Satan, his minions, and by extension, any who are relying on their power and their persuasion to exercise earthly authority. This connection is made painfully clear in the book of Revelation, especially chapters 12 through 19. The beasts come out of the sea, they influence the kings of this world to target the church, the people of the Lamb, and they do all of this because of what happened in chapter 12. The Lamb overcomes, and this great dragon is thrown out of heaven, down to earth, and he's angry because he knows he has lost. And so he sets about trying to destroy as much as he can before the end comes. Life in a moral universe not only means that there is good and evil, but it also flows all the way down. It reminds us that there is a cosmic war between good and evil, and this means that there are what we would call good guys 
and bad guys. There are heroes and there are villains. There are real victims and there are perpetrators. And all of the universe and every event falls under this universal battle. Again, the first gospel promise, Genesis 3.15. God says this to the serpent. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Genesis 3.15 not only promises victory, but it promises that there is going to be a battle raging forever. And when he talks about the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent, he's not talking about the fact that women don't like snakes. The offspring of the serpent are humans who follow the serpent. This battle starts with Eve's first two sons, Cain and Abel. One is an offspring of the woman. One is actually an offspring of the serpent. If you don't believe me, this is the logic that Jesus applies to the Jews of his day. He says, you are sons of the devil because you have rejected me. Seeds of the serpent. It's a spiritual reality, not a physical reality. They stand against the true sons of God. The seed of the woman is Christ, and only those who are united to him by faith. And that's the striking part of this cosmic battle between good and evil, is that you used to belong to the other side. You were born a rebel to God. You were born on the wrong side, and you needed to be born again. In other words, there's no room here for moral superiority. If not but the grace of God, you and I would all be enemies of God. It is only by grace and through faith. But we need to condition ourselves to see all of human history falling under this conflict between the good guys who are united to Christ by grace through faith and the sons of the serpent who love evil. And the sooner you get that paradigm in your head, the better. And this means that those two identity groups are the only ones that really matter. They're the primary ones. The world wants to divide you by age, by sex, by race, by wealth, by success, and then pit you against one another. But it's a distraction between the true battle. It's a tactic of Satan. He's really good at distracting us. So you are either a good guy by grace, or you are following Satan. So stick with me here, because this is where I lost one of my denominational VPs at this point. There are still bad guys today who are enemies of God and his people. There are no neutral territory here in this battle. This shouldn't be that controversial. Now, of course, just because we have enemies doesn't mean we can be jerks to them. The call to love your enemies still stands. The call to pray for your enemies still stands. To pray that they would join our side through the grace of God. But bad guys and enemies remain until God acts. And so, Christus Victor teaches us that Christ defeats the authorities and the rulers in the spiritual realm. He does that. And this has set a ticking time on all of their allies. They are fully defeated in one sense, but not yet fully defeated in the other sense. Defeated by the cross and the resurrection, but yet waiting for the fullness of that reality to come. So Christ has won, and he has disarmed them. What does that mean? Well, it means 
One, Satan can't accuse you anymore. And two, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, death has lost its sting. You will still, if the Lord tarries, probably die. But you will not fully die because death has lost its sting. Christ has overcome it. And this is what made Christianity so revolutionary to the Roman Empire. They were willing to die. Romans said, we'll throw you to the lions. They said, we don't care. We don't fear death anymore. Christ has overcome death. He has disarmed any weapon the world can use against us. The result. What is the result of all of this? Christ is victorious over his enemies. He defeats them. But the result is that he has put them to open shame. Look again at verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Sometimes we are told Christians shouldn't become too triumphant. That they shouldn't rejoice in a victory. But that if you really want to be spiritual, you should only rejoice in suffering. And I guess it really depends on what you mean by being triumphant. But Christianity in Christ is a triumphant religion. It is. And the sense here is that God through Christ not only defeats his enemy, but he puts them to public and open shame. He basically is mocking his opponents. See Psalm 2, if you need another example of that. If this was a sporting contest, it's like God just scored a touchdown and he's risking a taunting penalty. Because he's saying, you've got nothing. I'm winning and I'm going to win. The truth of the matter is that Satan likes to pretend like he is undefeatable, that he is always winning. And yet at the cross, we see his shame. We see his defeat and we see our victory. For too long, far too long, we've been trained by well-meaning theologians and pastors to lose. We've been trained again and again that everything is hopeless and that you are going to lose. But that does not run with what the New Testament says. That we have been trained to think that it's more spiritual to lose in this life than to win. And there's some truth to it, for Christ's victory comes through suffering. Christ's victory comes through dying. But it's still a victory. It's still a TKO. And to avoid sounding like some cheesy Sunday morning television preacher, who says you can have your best life now and you're always going to win and something silly like that, we measure victory by the standards of God, not men. Victory is not just material success. It's not just living your best life now. Victory is victory over evil. It's victory over sin. It's victory over the kingdom of darkness. It's the advance of the kingdom of light. And this can happen at an individual level when somebody repents and believes or when a believer repents of his or her own sin. It's victory. It can happen at a family level. It can happen at a community level, an institutional level, a societal level. The gospel goes forward and it conquers through the message of Christ. And when we doubt that, it is not a sign of spiritual maturity. It is a sign of a lack of faith. When we doubt that, it is not a sign of spiritual maturity, but a sign of a lack of faith. Christ is victorious and we are in him. So note the description Paul gives here of the shame over the enemy that Christ has done. You can't tell in the Greek, why would you be able to, right? 
but the word used here, the imagery intentionally used here by Paul was very common imagery in the Roman Empire. That when the Romans would win a battle, what they would do is they would take the surviving enemies and the surviving kings and they would parade them through the Roman town so everybody could mock them. That was the tradition. They'd win, they'd put their um, enemies before them and they'd ride up on their horses and they would march these people through the town so that they could be publicly mocked and shamed right before they were executed. And that's the imagery Paul wants in your mind here. There's a parallel passage to this in Ephesians 4. It says this, Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, that is Christ, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Christ led a host of captives after his death and resurrection. And they are shown to be utterly defeated and brought to judgment because Christ wins and they lose. If you study the, the old missionaries, as, as Christianity spread, spread throughout this world, and wherever it spread, including in Europe, it spread to where paganism was the primary religion. And what would often happen is wherever, when missionaries would come into places, there would be these witch doctors and these shamans, and they would be doing all of these witchcraft things. But when Christianity would show up, they couldn't do their witchcraft anymore. It wouldn't work because Christ had disarmed them. There's a wonderful story. I can't remember the name of the, of the guy. I think it's St. Bernard, not the dog. He, he walked in in Europe into a, a town where Thor's oak tree was. And he said, if Thor is God, then he will stop me from chopping down this tree. So he went in and he, with an axe in front of all of the pagans and took down Thor's oak tree where they worshipped. We need another brand of Christianity like that. Guess what? He didn't die. And they took the wood and they built a chapel in the church that they worshipped the Lord in. Christ goes forward and Christ conquers. And this is part of why we gather on Sunday mornings. As we sing songs... As we pray, as we confess sins, as we remember the Lord's death through communion, as the word is preached, we are declaring and partaking in that victory every Sunday morning. We sing praise songs for Christ is alive. We declare that he has won and the days of evil are numbered. We put the enemies of God on notice for Christ has risen and Christ is coming back. And Satan in this world don't understand it and they hate it because we are declaring their defeat. They are disarmed and they don't have a chance. They have no claim upon us anymore. For we are crucified with Christ. We are risen with Christ. And we are seated at the right hand of the Father with Christ. And you should worship and live like you actually believe that. So, the Bible we see here, gives us grounding for the importance of Christus victor. Christ is victorious. And therefore, you are victorious in him. But this victory must never be separated from penal substitutionary atonement. Christ died in your place to pay for your sins. You are one with him. Substitutionary atonement and victory go together. You'll see this right here in Colossians 2, 13 through 15. And as we proclaim victory through sacrifice and victory through death, we see the glories of Christ. A few months ago, Emily and I uh, went to a Christian concert. And in the middle, uh, the lead singer was talking about storytelling. He said, everybody loves a good story. But there's this reality hardwired in us that if you've 
are reading a book or if you're watching a movie and you get to the end of the movie and the problem isn't resolved, if the bad guy wins, we hate it. Have you ever been to a movie like that? You feel like you just wasted two hours of your life. You got to the end. It wasn't a happy ending and it grates against us. Why does it grate against us? Why do we hate it when the bad guy wins? Why do we hate it and think that there must be more to this story? Because at the very fabric of this universe is this cosmic battle between good and evil and it is hardwired into this universe that we know that evil can't win, ultimately. We know that a good story ends with victory, with the good guys on top and the bad guys on the bottom. And that's odd because in our day-to-day life, it often goes the other way. You may not see the bad guys of this day defeated. You may die before that happens. But it's hardwired in us to think, eventually good will win. Eventually good will triumph. And it it is my thought that that comes because God is there. And this is his universe. And he's hardwired it into you to know that evil loses. So I want to give you two applications here in closing. The first is this. Live with confidence in the victory of Christ. Since you are in Christ and Christ is in you, you too are victorious. Victory over your sin, over your death, has been secured in Christ. Moreover, victory over this world has also been secured in Christ. And so you should live with some boldness. Because Christ not only won, but he has put our enemies to open shame. What would living like that, with that kind of knowledge, look like for your life? How would it look for you living out the gospel? How would it look for you having boldness to share the gospel if you think Christ has won? Second, the story of our union with Christ and his victory is written in the middle here of Paul's confrontation of false teachers. Right before this, we get the warning of hollow and deceptive philosophies. Next week, we're going to move into some more specifics of those hollow and deceptive philosophies and that with a discussion on food laws, Sabbaths, and festivals, and whatnot. But right here in the middle, Paul makes this point, that Christ has won. He, he separates these two discussion, or this discussion about um, false teaching, and he wants to remind you of the gospel, and he wants you to remind, be reminded of Christ's victory. Why? Because those ideologies have lost. They have no power. This is what makes them empty. Christ has won and Satan has lost. So what could you possibly gain from empty philosophies and ideologies that have lost? Why would they be appealing? Why would you beg for scraps from ideologies that are embarrassed and defeated? For That is what Christians do when they try to be a halfway house between Christ and the world. Christ is victorious, and we have everything we need in him. He is conquered through his death and through his resurrection. And then he has sent out his people with that message of victory, that you can be transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And this only comes by grace through faith in Christ. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you have sent your Son to die on our behalf. And that in him, we have victory. Victory over our own sin, victory over our own death, and victory over this world. Lord, we pray that you would hasten the day when that victory
becomes a full reality. When Christ descends and this world is made new. But until that day comes, Lord, may you strengthen us to live with a bold faith that knows that Christ has won and we win in him. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Take your bulletin.